Good morning again. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 12, will be our sermon text for this morning. Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. If you're new here or visiting with us for the first time, uh, let me uh, tell you, we, we uh, go week after week through uh, books of the Bible. So last week we looked at Acts chapter 19. This week we're looking at the first half of Acts chapter 20. Next week we'll be looking at the second half of Acts chapter 20 and so on and so forth. And we do that because we believe that the Bible is God's word and we want to hear what God has to say. We, so we don't skip anything. We just go through it week after week, passage after passage, trying to, get, uh, trying to hear uh, from God as we turn to his word, which we'll do now. Uh, before we read that, though, let's pray together and ask for God to be with us. Our Father, we we come to you again and we, we seek your face because we, we need you. Uh, we need you. We need you. We need your spirit to be at work in us right now. We need your spirit to be at work in me, uh, giving me words to say, uh, enabling me to speak truth and not error. Uh, we need your spirit to be at work in all of us as we hear, uh, that you would soften our hearts, that we would have ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to grasp. Uh, what your word has to say to us this morning. And so we pray, Father, that you would speak to us by your spirit, uh, that your word, especially the gospel of your son, would sink deeply into our hearts, that we would uh, believe it and trust in him, and that in light of that, we would be transformed by your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 20, beginning with verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Peter the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. <laughs> and becoming overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. When Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Why are you here? 
don't know how many sermons I've started with that question, uh, but I, I've asked it quite a bit because it's an important question. And it even means slightly different things depending on the text. Here's what I mean this week. Uh, those of us in this room are from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different nationalities, different cultures. We have different hometowns, different accents, sometimes even different languages, right? So we sound different. Uh, we look different too. We have different likes, different dislikes, different hobbies, different talents. We do different things on Friday nights. Sometimes we have different convictions, even different theologies, different political views, sometimes different moral principles. I might enjoy a beer in the evening, but you might think that's wrong. You might enjoy the, the newest Marvel movie, but someone else might think that is wrong. And the truth is, if you gather 50 random Christians from around the world and put them in one room, you will probably find little consensus on most issues. And so with so many differences, why are we here now together? The answer, I think, is, uh, there are probably lots of answers to that question, some good, some bad, maybe. But uh, the, the best answer, I think, is, is because of something called Christian unity. Uh, now, Christian unity is not cultural unity. Uh, I've already pointed out, right? There are too many different cultures, uh, too many cultural differences within Christianity. Uh, if Christian unity were cultural, the church would splinter apart. Christian unity is not subjective unity. Uh, Christian unity is not because we like one another. It's not because we get along or some such thing. It's not even because we agree on issues, whether social, political, and sometimes even theological. I'm not saying that, that we don't like one another, and I'm not saying we don't get along, and I'm not saying we don't agree on some things. But our unity is not founded on such things, or it won't last. Actually, our unity is objective. It's similar to a family, right? Uh, uh, families have an objective unity, whether they like it or not. Uh, a family is a family even when you're arguing, even when you don't like one another in the moment. Now, I realize in a fallen world, some families stop being families, but, but then they're not families. And so the objective basis of their unity has come to an end. But until that point, there is an objective unity, even if there's subjective disunity, even if they're at odds with one another in the moment. And so even when you can't stand your brother, he's still your brother, whether you like it or not. And that's true in our physical families, and that's true in the church. So what is the basis of our objective unity as Christians? Well, we read earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it said, For he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. See, Jesus has taken, taken two groups of people who were disunited and united them in his body. 
Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, we have this objective unity in Christ. I am in Christ, you are in Christ, therefore we are one in Christ. That is actually a unity that we, we cannot break. The world offers unities which are too easily broken, right? Subjective, interest-based, cultural, political. But Jesus offers unity through spirit-raw union with himself. And as we trust in Christ, we are united to him by faith. Now, as a, a kind of an aside, some say that Christian unity should know no bounds. But that can't be right because our unity is in Christ. We, we do not have this kind of fundamental unity with those outside of Christ. We share a common humanity, to be sure. We have a kind of unity in Adam. We have a kind of common suffering under the curse of sin. And so it's right for us to sympathize with others in that, to appreciate that commonality. But our unity ends there, but not with those who are in Christ. Christ brings together people from every tribe and tongue and nation and unites them objectively in himself. And so this, this objective Christian unity is in Christ. It cannot be broken, but we don't often see it. And what I mean by that is, is very often that unity is not manifest. Again, the, the family analogy works, right? Oftentimes, the children squabble. And our text this morning helps us see how that, how that in Christ unity is manifest. What we're going to see is that unity in Christ is expressed through a, a gospel-shaped community which looks like serving together and gathering together and hoping together. And so how can we express gospel-shaped community? Well, at least three ways that we see in our text. We can serve together, we can gather together, and we can hope together. So first, we can serve together. Uh, the, the first six verses of Acts chapter 20 are a bit of a travel log. Uh, after the riot in Ephesus, Paul heads to Macedonia, then to Greece, then back through Macedonia. And everywhere Paul went, he is encouraging the disciples. But when you get to verse 4, uh, we, we find a list of Paul's companions. And the, the, maybe the most interesting thing about this list, and at least the first thing to notice about this group, is their diversity. Right? So you have Sopater, the Berean. Uh, you may remember the Bereans from a few chapters back. Uh, the, 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 the Bereans were, were more noble than the Thessalonians because they listened to Paul's message and they searched the scriptures to see if it were true. They didn't immediately reject what Paul said, but they wrestled with it as they wrestled with scripture. Then there's Aristarchus and Secundus, Thessalonians. And given their names, uh, Aristarchus was likely part of the aristocracy, the upper crust of Thessalonian society. And Secundus, on the other hand, was probably a slave. Most people wouldn't name their children Secundus. <laughs> but sometimes slaves would be given numbers as titles, and so Secundus would have been the second-ranked servant in his house. 
And then you have Gaius from the city of Derbe and Timothy, a young man from Lystra, both from the region of Galatia. You have two men from the region of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus. And of course, let's not forget Luke. Luke, who, who is the writer of the book of Acts, verse 5 says, these, all those men we just named, went on ahead of us, right, cluing us in that, that Luke is now present again with Paul. And so you have upper class and lower class, uh, young and likely old uh, Galatians and Asians and Macedonians spanning two continents, three regions, and at least five cities, likely more. And of course you have Paul from Tarsus, uh, which adds another region and another city, a Jew. Now his traveling companions, on the other hand, are Gentiles. Uh, even Timothy, uh, who, whose mother was Jewish, his father was a Gentile. And, and the point is that this is a, a diverse group of people spanning almost everywhere Paul has preached the gospel. And here they are side by side serving together in Christian unity. What do these men have in common? The gospel. That's it. Christ alone has brought them together. Now that may be remarkable in and of itself, but there's actually something more remarkable going on. Though Luke doesn't fill us in on this until later, Paul talks about it repeatedly in his epistles, especially those that were written about this time. Paul has been taking up a collection for the poor in Jerusalem. And everywhere he goes, he has been asking for money, not for himself, but for the poor Jewish church in Jerusalem. We know from 1 Corinthians that each church sent representatives with Paul to deliver the funds, which is why Paul's merry band of men keeps expanding everywhere he goes. Which means, as most commentators believe, this group of diverse men, Gentiles though they be, are delivering an offering, Paul himself calls it alms in Acts 24, to the Jewish church. So Gentiles throughout the Roman world are gathering together and giving an offering to the Jewish church in Jerusalem. That's what's going on here. This is the, the ultimate expression of Christian unity, isn't it, right? That's, why, that's what Paul was hoping for. God is glorified as his people love one another across ethnic and economic lines, as his people care for one another when they're in need. Now, that, that boundary-crossing kind of love, of course, is, is intrinsic to the gospel itself, isn't it? It's only as we see Christ's service to us in the gospel that we will find ourselves the, the freedom and the motive and the power to serve others in this way. And, and think about it. Uh, why, why don't we serve? Right? Why, don't we, why don't we give to others the way these men are giving? What hinders us from serving others well? I mean, there are lots of things, right? I mean, we, 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 don't, we don't love others. I mean, we do in, in kind of a nice way, right? But really deeply care for those around us, especially those who are different from us. We, we don't have time, right? I mean, often because we're pursuing our own comfort or reputation. We're just busy. Or we don't see service as beautiful, as desirable. Service, we think, is for servants, not me. Well, again, consider the gospel, right? Think about the gospel. God the Son from all eternity crossed the, the greatest distinction there was, right? God loved man. Creator loved the creation. The Holy One loved sinners. And Jesus gave up comfort and he took on shame. Hebrews 12 tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, 
despising the shame. Why did he do that? Why did Jesus, uh, God uh, from all eternity, take on human flesh and become man and go to the cross and die? Uh, Mark tells us, Mark 10, 45, that Jesus did that to serve. Jesus says in that verse, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so it's, it's as we meditate on this gospel that we actually find the freedom and the motivation to serve as Jesus served. See, see we, don't, we, don't, we don't always love others for honest with ourselves, but as, as the love of Christ takes hold of our hearts, we learn to love. We're often busy pursuing our own comfort and name and other such things, but Jesus offers us something better than comfort, right? The joy of service now and the promise of a reward on the last day, you, you, right? As Jesus was rewarded in the resurrection, so he promises us that our reward comes through service, through trial, even through pain. Uh, to literal servants in Colossians 3, Paul tells them, work heartily as for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Right? All of our service, all of our behavior is in service to Him, and our reward is from Him. And of course, Jesus offers us something better than worldly reputation. Right? Having ransomed us from sin, we are righteous before the Father. We're free from having to earn our own name or earn our own righteousness or earn our own status or prove ourselves to God. So we have no need to perform, which means we're freed up to serve. Because I'm not busy trying to prove how good of a person I am. Finally, we don't, we don't often see service as beautiful or desirable. But if we grasp the cross, right, who can deny the beauty of God's love there? The beauty of self-sacrifice. Remember, that is Jesus serving us. Paul tells us that this is to be a model of Christian behavior. He tells us that in Philippians chapter 2. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. See, service is Beautiful Servanthood is not below us. It's, it's that to which we must aspire to become a servant in imitation of Jesus. We serve as Christ first served us in the gospel. Oh, that God would give me that servant's heart. Like that I would really love the people around me the way I've been loved. Our unity in Christ is manifest in that gospel-shaped community as we as a community, serve one another, encourage one another, build up one another, and put one another first. Second, our unity in Christ is manifest as we gather together, as we are this morning. Paul and, and Luke join their companions uh, in the city of Troas, ancient Troy. What we find in these few verses is one of the, the few, one of the earliest descriptions of early Christian uh, worship in the New Testament. Uh, notice the details in verses 7 and 11. Uh, the first Christians gathered on the first day of the week, which is actually kind of remarkable, uh, given that there's no explicit command to do so. Nevertheless, the early Christians began celebrating the first day instead of the seventh. Why would they do that? 
Well, because the seventh day celebrated as the seventh day, celebrated the completion of that first creation, the first day celebrates the beginning of the new creation. Since Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, we celebrate that as we gather together week after week, celebrating the new creation that he has brought. You see this hinted at in another place in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 16 too, where Paul says, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Again, he's talking about his collection. And he's saying to the Corinthians, look, put it aside. The first day of every week, put a little money aside so that I can receive that collection for the poor when I come. Now, Paul could have said on the last day of the week, the day when everyone was likely to get paid, but Paul says on the first day of the week. Why would he say on the first day of the week? Well, likely, again, because the church gathered together on this day. There was a kind of collection or offering as we continue to this day. So the church gathers on the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and so the beginning of the new creation that has come. But second, notice that the Christians gathered for three purposes, at least three. Uh, one is to break bread, what we call the Lord's Supper. Two is for Paul's speech, that is his, his Bible teaching. And third was for fellowship, right? Notice in verse 11, after Paul's speech was over and they had broken bread, and a few other things happened, which we'll get to, uh, they kept talking. They kept talking. In fact, they, they conversed, we're told, for a long while. That brings me to the third thing to notice about this gathering. And uh, let me point out two things about time. First is when they met. Uh, they met on Sundays, but when? Right? Their worship service was probably not at 10.30 a.m. Uh, why not? Well, because the early church was a diverse community. Slaves were not in control of their schedule. They had responsibilities during the day. That means the church met whenever they could. <laughs> We know from uh, one letter by, by Governor Pliny in the early second century that some Christians met before dawn. And that time makes sense for servants and slaves, right? Because it was before the day's work had begun. They'd get together really early in the morning before the sun even comes up, right? So maybe what time does the sun come up? 6 a.m., something like that. So if we had met this morning at 4, right? That's what it would be the equivalent of, right? It's from now on, right? Our worship service, 4 a.m., this would be an empty room, wouldn't it? But that's much of the early church met at 4 a.m. or some such time as that. Uh, but here, the church li likely met after the day's work was done. So when we read that Paul prolonged his speech until midnight, it's not that he started at noon and kept preaching until midnight. It wasn't a 12-hour sermon. But the second thing to note about time is that it might have been a four-hour or five-hour or even six-hour sermon. I mean, the Christians got off work. They gathered for worship. The Apostle Paul was there, right? And he, he began to speak God's word. And he went from five o'clock or six o'clock or seven o'clock or eight o'clock, whatever time it was they gathered, until midnight. The point is, of course, in the text, as we'll see in a moment, it was late. People were tired. Now, how could they possibly stand preaching for that long? And part of the answer to that question is it was a different age, right? Uh, they didn't have Netflix and Twitter and iPhones, which meant both that they were used to concentrated attention on one thing for long periods of time. They were okay with that. But also this was their entertainment. 
And I don't say that to trivialize Paul's teaching. I don't mean that in a negative way, but just that they weren't thinking, man, I hope this pastor wraps up so I can see the game on TV. The community was their entertainment. And you see that clearly because even after Paul's sermon is done, sometime around midnight, they, they, they celebrate the Lord's Supper, likely have a meal together at that point as well, and they keep talking. How long do they keep talking? They keep talking until the sun comes up. Verse 11. Right? So, so they start in the evening at some point. Maybe it's 5, maybe it's 6, maybe it's even 8 o'clock. They have a four-hour service until midnight with some excitement in between. They celebrate the Lord's Supper. They have a meal together. And then they hang out until the sun comes up. Literally. Which means in the end, you probably are talking 10 to 12 hours at church. <laughs> I know you're getting nervous. What is Luke going to say next? <laughs> you know, there have been times, actually, I was thinking about this. There actually have been times in, in my and Deborah's life when we did this. Kind of. There, there was one year in particular in Philly. Thomas and Nathaniel had, had both been born. Nathaniel was an infant. And we would go to a 9 o'clock Sunday school, an 11 o'clock service, 1245 college ministry with lunch and Bible teaching, which went until 2.30. We'd go home for a brief respite uh, before I led a Bible study at 5.30, had evening service at 7.30, and then we had people over our house for dinner afterwards, and I would drive the last of them home at midnight. Let me tell you, we could not do that today. <laughs> uh, you know, when you look at what happened here, and when you hear about what others might have done in past lives, church life for us is going to look different. Uh, some of the things here in Acts do set a pattern for us, the things that we've mentioned, right? The gathering together, the hearing God's word, the celebrating the Lord's Supper. But others are unique to that time and place. I don't think the text is saying, I need to preach until midnight and then we need to stick around until the sun comes up. Uh, for one thing, most of us have Sunday morning off, for example, and so our situation is a little bit different from the slaves uh, in uh, the town where they were. But there are still two key components, right, that we need to, we need to pick up on, and, and let me highlight them. The first is, of course, gathering together before God. Uh, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. When we gather together, we draw near, not just to one another, we draw near to God. When the church is gathered, it, it gathered to hear God's word, it gathered to eat at God's table. You know, one, one prototype for this in the Old Testament is Mount Sinai. That, that's kind of the uh, prototype. God had brought his people out of slavery. He, he brought them to himself to hear his word. And upon hearing his word, they, they enjoyed fellowship with God in a covenant meal. Exodus 24, I think it is which is kind of like a, a wedding reception, right? It celebrates the relationship with the, which the words have just brought about. Well, Christians gather on the first day of the week to draw near to God, to hear his voice, especially the news about Jesus, and to enjoy and celebrate their intimacy with God that comes through Jesus at his table. That's what we do week after week. Now, I wanna pause uh, for, for a minute here and just think about how this is all possible. You know, nowadays we have no sense of God's holiness in general. And so to speak of drawing near to God, it may sound odd, but it doesn't ring any alarm bells. 
Scripture, on the other hand, teaches that God's presence is dangerous. In fact, you may remember at Mount Sinai, they actually put up a fence around the mountain. Only certain people were allowed to draw near. Other people had to stay away on the penalty of death. See, God is holy, right? God is, God is different from us. Uh, God is uncreated. What's more, he's without sin. Human beings, on the other hand, are sinful. We have rebelled against God. It's as if there's a warrant out for our arrest and we're talking about walking into the courtroom. Right? That, that should cause a little shaking, a little fear, a, a little trembling. Because of sin, human beings are at enmity with God. We're no longer on speaking terms. The wedding's been called off. And now we're talking about hanging out. At the very least, that's awkward. But, but with God, it's terrifying. How is it that we can talk so freely about drawing near to God? And, and the answer, of, of course, is, is Jesus. Uh, God the Son was with God the Father and God the Spirit from all eternity, who's in perfect communion with himself, right? He lacked nothing. He needed nothing. He created the world, not, not, because, not because he was lonely, but to share his goodness, and yet human beings rejected him and enmity came into the world. Human beings, having rejected God, of course, deserve to be rejected by him. That's, that's justice, that's equity, that's fairness. But Jesus came into the world. He took on human flesh. He became one of us to be rejected for us, that we might be accepted in him. In fact, Jesus was both rejected by men and forsaken by the Father in our place at the cross. God the Father treated Jesus on the cross as if he were us. That we, by believing in Jesus, might be treated by God the Father as if we were Jesus. Righteous and perfect and pure. And what that means now is that it, as we believe in Jesus, we've been reconciled to the Father in him. And we can have a boldness. We can have a boldness to draw near. Not because we are so great, but because Jesus is so great. And so as God first brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt and then brought them near to himself at Sinai, so God through Jesus brings us out of slavery to sin, out of sin's condemnation, out of sin's curse, and then welcomes us to draw near. And so the first sort of key component of gathering together that we need to see from this text is drawing near, drawing near to God as we gather together with one another, drawing near to hear God's word, drawing near to, to partake at God's table. The second key component of this weekly gathering is gathering together with one another. Uh, the church, even after the formal service here was done, they continued to talk for a long while until daybreak, which is to say that it, it wasn't just the formal parts of the service which were important. People didn't jet as soon as the benediction was given, right? They continued to talk and fellowship, and encourage one another till the wee hours of the morning. And see, Jesus not only brings us out of Egypt, so to speak, but he brings us into the church, into the community of God's people. And he calls us to be the family of God, with God as our Father and Jesus as our elder brother, the Spirit holding us together as one. And so we live and participate in this family. So unity in Christ is expressed through, through this gospel-shaped community, which includes uh, worship and fellowship as we draw near, as we gather together. We gather to draw near to our Father. We gather to encourage one another. And uh, third and more briefly, we, 
We serve together, we gather together, and we hope together. Now, maybe the funniest part of the book of Acts, right, as tragic as it must have been at the time, is found in this passage. I, I thought of calling this uh, message one long killer sermon, <laughs> but I refrained. But you can just imagine the scene, right? Uh, three stories up in this large meeting room, Paul begins to preach and it starts to get late and Paul preaches a little more and they light lamps and lamps are lit, many lamps are lit. Uh, the air perhaps therefore is, is thick with smoke and body heat and all of these people in this upper room and Paul keeps on talking. And there's this boy, uh, probably somewhere between 8 and 14, uh, because of the word youth used in verse 12. So this, this young boy, 8 and 14. One might imagine that perhaps during a long sermon, a young boy in a hot room might get sleepy. It's, of course, encouraging to all preachers that, that Eutychus fell asleep during one of the Apostle Paul's sermons. Right? Verse 9 says, Eutychus sitting at the window, maybe to get some air, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Now, there's actually, believe it or not, some debate over whether Eutychus really died or just appeared dead. But you've got to remember, Luke, the, the writer of the book of Acts, who happens to be there, remember the us portion, uh, he's a physician, after all. He's a doctor by trade. He probably knew the difference between a dead body and a living one. And yet Paul goes down, and he bends over this young boy, and he takes him up in his arms, and he says, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. Paul's words echo uh, the words of Jesus when he was about to raise a ruler's daughter, dead daughter, to life in, Ma in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus said, the girl is not dead, but sleeping. In fact, Jesus on multiple occasions raised dead children to life again, which echoes back even further to Elijah and Elisha, who both raised dead sons in their own day. And of course, the ultimate point in every case is not that God is going to make all your troubles go away, at least not yet. Elijah and Elisha, Jesus and Paul all raised children from the dead at times, but they didn't raise all children from the dead. And those children whom they raised eventually died again. Their lives were mourned again. But when God's son rose from the dead, when Jesus rose from the dead, it was different from all the rest. You know, some have made the distinction that all those former people were resuscitated from death, but Jesus underwent resurrection. And, and the distinction there is meant to, to explain that Jesus' body did not simply come back to life, like Eutychus's body. We're told that Jesus was transformed. Right? Jesus rose from the dead never to die again. Scripture teaches us, teaches us, of course, that when Jesus returns, we too will rise from the dead. In fact, it even says, if you're not dead when Jesus returns, you'll still be changed. Right? There is a transformation 
to come. There is a resurrection which we will all experience, whether we're dead or alive, at Jesus' return. Our bodies will be remade and restored. See, the, the, the Christian hope is not simply to get our bodies back, but that these old bodies will be transformed. The Christian hope is that, that death will not have the final word, that, that we will rise and be renewed. And any healing or any resurrection miracle in the Bible, whether by Elijah or Elisha or Jesus or Peter or Paul or anybody else, they were mere pictures, parables of something greater to come. See, we have hope, friends. And the closer we get to death, the more we must meditate on this blessed hope that there will come a day when our bodies will be restored. No pain, no suffering, no weakness, no sickness, no weariness or fatigue, but health and strength and vigor. That is our hope. We will live in flesh and blood, not as disembodied spirits floating in the sky, but flesh and blood renewed by the Spirit to dwell with God and with one another forever. That is our hope. And we're not there yet. Which is why presently we hope together. You know, sometimes when suffering or temptation is, uh, comes our way, when suffering comes our way, our temptation is to pull away from the church or to pull away from other Christians. It's like if you poke a hermit crab or a turtle, what happens, right? They, they pull back into their shell. But of course, suffering is exactly the time when we need others speaking into our lives the most, reminding us of God's love in the midst of our trouble, reminding us of things to come and the hope that we have, encouraging and comforting us by God's presence in and through them as his people. And so we hope together. We long together. We remind ourselves this is not the end. Jesus came to be alienated from the Father at the cross as service to us. And in so doing, he conquered sin and the curse and did away with them in the resurrection. Which means we can draw near to God through Jesus. We can serve those around us as we have been served. And we can be a community of hope in things to come as one new people in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we know that this hope can be ours. And yet, often we don't. Often we despair rather than hope. We pray that by your Spirit you would give us this hope, that you would fill us with hope as we meditate on your grace, on the gospel, and on your promises of things to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.